Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is a special episode of WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. When it comes to understanding what matters in the economy, there are few people better positioned than Mohammed El Arian. He is one of the world's most respected economists, served as chair of the president's Global Development Council from 2012 to 2017, and has been named four times to Foreign Policy Magazine's Top 100 Global Thinkers list. El Arian previously served as the chief executive and chief investment officer at financial services company PIMCO, and today is the chief economic advisor at PIMCO's parent company, Allianz, one of the world's largest insurance and financial services firms. He is also the president of Queens College at the University of Cambridge. El Arian says he's growing more worried about a U.S. recession happening next year, and that worry comes from the economy losing its anchors. What consensus has been expecting has gone from soft landing to hard landing to no landing, back to hard landing, to crash landing, back to hard landing, back to soft landing. That's an incredible sequence. And it tells you that we've lost our anchors. We've lost our economic anchors, we've lost our policy anchors, and we've lost our technical anchors. His new book is called Permacrisis, A Plan to Fix a Fractured World. And we talked about both of those things, the permacrisis he sees in the U.S. and the world, and what he sees as the solutions. Here's our interview with Mohamed Alari. Mohamed, in your opinion, what's the single most important data point to watch right now for the U.S. and for the world? That is a really hard question to answer because there are several challenges out there and no single data point captures it. Having said Mm. that, I think that you certainly want to look at what's happening to inflation. You certainly want to look at what's happening to growth. And you also want to look at what's happening to interest rates. And those three variables will shed a lot of light on what's ahead. Mm. So for those, right, because we've been in this place where it's just been all about inflation. Um, And that, I think, has really been the lens through which you look at all the other data. Is that how you're looking at things? So inflation is important for several reasons. One is it determines the actions of the Federal Reserve. And the Mm -hmm. Fed is the world's most important central banker. And the Fed single-handedly can hard land the economy if they repeat the policy mistakes. So Mm. it's really important to try and make that link. The second reason why inflation is important is because of its distributional effects. As we all know, inflation hits the poor particularly hard, especially when it's food inflation, because that eats up a Mm -hmm. major part of the budget. That has not just economic consequences, but also social and political consequences. And then thirdly, while 
inflation stability or more broadly macro stability isn't everything. Without it, you don't get high growth. And we are in desperate need of high, more inclusive growth that also respects the planet. So getting inflation back under control is Mm -hmm. very important for a number of reasons. Yeah. I want to go to something you said there in your response. You said you talked about policy mistakes of the Fed. Uh, And in your book, you actually you invoke Taylor Swift. I thought this was really creative. You said that central banks and policymakers should see that it's them. They're the problem. It's them. Uh, And then you write, until the very nature of economic management is overhauled, there will continue to be bad blood poisoning lives, livelihoods and markets. Very spicy use of Taylor Swift there. Um, What are some of the policy mistakes that you've seen from the Fed? And also, I'm curious, what gives you confidence that they can see that they are the problem and that it's them and that they'll change? Well, unfortunately, there's been six big policy mistakes. Remember, as I said, you're talking about the most powerful central bank. Um, There's been analysis problems. So calling inflation transitory and maintaining that characterization for too long That was a huge Mm -hmm. mistake. Secondly, lack of timely action. Even when they recognized that inflation was in transitory in November of 2021, they didn't move quickly enough. And the result of that is they were late and we've had a very concentrated hiking cycle. Third error, forecasting mistakes. Repeated forecasting mistakes in the same direction. Fourth error, supervision mistakes. We've had blow-ups in a few mid-sized banks that were un- happened under the nose of the Federal Reserve. Fifth mm-hmm. problem is communication. They have had lapses in communication that have added to volatility. Normally, Fed communication is supposed to repress volatility. And finally, there's been a failure of credibility and accountability. So mm-hmm. when you look at that, It is a really long list. Um, So why can you be hopeful? Because there's enough experience and best practices around the world that if the Fed were to implement them, they can restore their credibility, they can enhance their accountability, and they can limit other mistakes. So let's talk about that a bit. How has the Fed lost credibility? Is it just that they've made these mistakes? And I feel like credibility is a really important thing for central banks. So if the Fed has lost credibility, that seems like a pretty big deal. So let me start with somewhat of a ridiculous example, but it sheds light on on your question. When the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank that failed, when the CEO was in front of Congress, you know what he said? He said, it's because I believed the Fed. It's because I believed that inflation was going to be transitory. I say that because it really sheds light on the loss of credibility. If a CEO can sit there in front of Congress and say, the reason why I made a mistake is because I trusted the world's most powerful central bank and they were wrong. That is quite a statement. We've also seen Mm -hmm. the markets continuously take a different view of future interest rates path than what is guided by the Fed. Now, the Fed determines the rates. So the Fed has ultimate power over the markets as to where the Fed funds rate is going to be. And yet, repeatedly, 
the market has taken on the Fed. And then we have seen such significant volatility. That type of volatility is not a good thing. And Fed communication is supposed to be volatility repressing, not volatility enhancing. So there's different elements of credibility. But I think the biggest one is unlike other central banks, they haven't stepped up to owning their mistakes. And mm. if you're going to restore your credibility, you have to convey a sense of understanding why it is that you made repeated mistakes. But we have heard from members of the Board of Governors, from regional Fed presidents, on this transitory issue, especially, hey, we were wrong, we messed up, here's why we got it wrong. I think uh, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari even wrote a blog, detailed pretty thoroughly why he got it wrong, how, what he missed, and how he thinks they can do better in the future. Do you feel like the Fed is doing better now? So first, owning your mistake is not a regional bank president saying that on a blog. It is doing what the ECB has done. It is doing what the Bank of England has done, which is that the board issues a paper explaining. You could even go further, like the Bank of England has done. They have hired an external assessor, Ben Bernanke, to come in and look at why their forecasts have been wrong. So when you compare the Fed's ownership of its forecasting mistake, of its analytical mistake, um, it is a lot weaker than what the other two major banks have done. Having mm. said that, yes, the Fed is in a better place. After that big mistake of calling inflation transitory and never underestimate how dangerous that word is. When you tell somebody that a phenomenon is transitory, you're telling them it's temporary, it is reversible, so don't worry right. about it. Um, so it's a very meaningful statement coming from a major central bank. They, they had to then play massive catch-up, and we've had an increase in interest rates so concentrated that we haven't seen it for decades. We came close to a banking issue, as you know, and if it wasn't for the fact that the authorities relaxed um, the restrictions on deposit guarantee. We basically guaranteed all deposits, which creates moral hazard, but that's what we had to do in order to contain the banking crisis. If it wasn't for that, mm -hmm. we would have had a financial accident. Luckily for all of us, the economy has been impressively robust and resilient, and that's wonderful. We're going to take a short break, but first I want to note that we reached out to the Federal Reserve, which declined to comment. Back in 2021, Fed Chair Jerome Powell told the Senate Banking Committee that it was, quote, really hard to predict the issues that led to high inflation. We'll be right back with more from our interview with Mohamed Alarian. Join The Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. This is a bonus episode of WSJ's Take on the Week. Let's get back to our one-on-one -on -one with Mohamed Alarian. 
I could talk to you about central banks and policy all day, but I want to move on to something else, which is the market. I've always said that if you want to understand what's happening in the world, watch the bond market. Right now, we've got bond yields spiking to levels we haven't seen in decades, but after the latest Fed meeting, you saw a reversal in bond yields kind of come down. What do you feel like the bond market is telling us right now? It's telling you it's confused. We've seen enormous volatility. There used to be a a simple um, interpretation. 2022 was all about the bond market realizing that central banks were behind and they would have to increase interest rates aggressively. 2023 was all about the Fed, the, the market's understanding that interest rates were to remain high for longer. And then we pivoted to people worrying about the deficit and worrying about the amount of issuance we were going to get and who was going to buy that. Yeah, how much bond issuance? How much bond issuance. Now, that is all true, but there's a more fundamental issue. And, and I cite you know, a very simple thing that happened. Over the last 15 plus months, the conventional wisdom about the U.S. economy, you're talking about the largest economy in the world, you're talking about the economy with the most mature institution. What consensus has been expecting has gone from soft landing to hard landing to no landing, back to hard landing, to crash landing, back to hard landing, back to soft landing. That's an incredible sequence. And it tells you that we've lost our anchors. We've lost our economic anchors, we've lost our policy anchors, and we've lost our technical anchors. And I should say, for people who don't follow economics as closely, when we're talking about hard landing, soft landing, it's essentially how inflation will come down and the economy will recover. So a soft landing, essentially, the inflation comes down and we don't lose a lot of jobs. Hard landing is inflation comes down, but we lose a lot of jobs. That's absolutely right. And, so, and the thing is that the two things that matter most to most people, inflation means is your purchasing power being eroded? And then whether we have high growth or low growth or recession, God forbid, means how much income security do you have? So these two things are, are, are essential to consumer sentiment and business sentiment. Mm. You've said you're a little worried about the possibility of a recession in 2024. Talk to me about that. Yeah, you know, for the, for the last year when, when people were saying we're going into recession in 2023, I pushed back. I kept on saying there's no reason we go into recession. This economy mm-hmm. is inherently strong. Balance sheets are robust. Um, now, I must say I'm more worried about 2024. And I'm more worried about 2024 for three reasons. One mm-hmm. is the lagged effect of these massive increases in interest rates. They, they act with a lag. Second is that people's savings have been run down. And thirdly, the international context has become even more uncertain. And all of those things, do you think, are leading us to a path where we're likely to have a recession? Or if something doesn't change, we'll have a recession? What's your thought on that? I think we, we, we are more sensitive to recession risk. Um, you know, fundamentally, it's about resilience. It's about the ability to absorb shocks either domestic or external, and Mm -hmm. get back up on your feet quickly. 
And, yeah. and we've lost financial resilience as savings have been run down, as the cost of credit has gone up, the cost of mortgages has gone up, all that has eaten into financial resilience. We've lost human resilience, and we've also lost institutional resilience, as we discussed earlier. So it's about having less resilience at a time when the world has become more uncertain. I also want to talk to you about economic inequality. Uh, I think that's an important topic that you have focused on that others haven't given as much time to. And I, I think this undergirds a lot of what we're seeing uh, right now in the economy and broadly. Um, that inequality has really worsened radically since the COVID pandemic. Do you expect that trend to meaningfully reverse anytime soon? I hope so, because the, the pandemic has just aggravated um, rising inequality that has happened before. You know, we pursued domestic growth and globalization while losing sights of two basic elements, equity and sustainability. And there was an assumption that if we just pursue economic prosperity at the macro level, then it will lift all boats at the mm -hmm. micro level. And that was true both domestically and internationally. And then we found out that the growth was not inclusive enough and the growth did not respect our planet. And, and that has become a big problem. We have an inequality crisis and we have climate change crisis. That yeah. is really important. Now, when you look at inequality, think of what happens when, when you feel that you're falling behind consistently and you're being marginalized, you're likely to be alienated as well. That means that inequality is not just an economic problem. It's also a social and political problem. Mm. And you start getting bad outcomes because part, you know, a bigger part of your population feels alienated, feels marginalized, they are angry. Um, and then next thing you know, your economic issues, including the reality of, of people of the most vulnerable segments being very, very exposed to any shock, becomes also social and political. And that's why it's really mm. important to address um, inequality. And I think that, that there's greater awareness today that we, we should continue to pursue capitalism, but keep on the radar screen equity and sustainability. And I think we've seen that in the, some of these consumer confidence numbers we're seeing. But I do want to say I asked you whether you expected that trend to reverse course. And you said you hoped it does. Do you think it will? Um, let me tell you why I'm hopeful. Because we have three labor augmenting transformations going on. And I want to stress labor augmenting, which means that mm -hmm. the average person will become better at what they do and do it for longer. And that means higher productivity, higher ability to secure good wages. So what are these three? First is the technology one and generative AI in particular. That can be significantly labor augmenting. The second mm -hmm. is the amazing transformations and advances we're seeing in life sciences. And the third is the energy transition. And if you look at all these three, which we do, of course, there are risks involved. 
But if they are managed well, they can start helping us change the equation, change the direction of travel away from this sense of permacrisis. Now, it's not going to help over the next two years, but it will help beyond that if we handle these significant transformations well. Mm. And why do you say two years? Because I think, unfortunately, the next two years, it will be very difficult to move the needle in a significant way. Productivity doesn't change quickly. Debt dynamics mm. don't change quickly. Inequality doesn't change quickly. Um, the damage to the planet doesn't change quickly. So it takes time. And therefore, we have a better destination ahead of us. We just have to manage a pretty bumpy journey. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with Allianz Chief Economic Advisor and President of Queens College, Mohammed El Arian. Mohammed, the, the thing I will leave you with is a genuine question I have because I, I read through your book and you describe it as a hopeful book. And I think in a lot of ways it is, but it does rely a lot on some of these policymakers and central bank officials seeing the error of their ways and really reversing course and making decisions in a different way and making different decisions. I personally have not seen much that gives me a lot of hope that that will happen or makes me expect that that will happen. Do you and why? Um, so I do have that hope. Um, I have it for two reasons. One is people learn from their mistakes and there are enough good, good practices, best practices being implemented around the world that if we just have a more open mind and are willing to be more, more humble and learn from others, um, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to implement best practices that already exist. That's the first mm -hmm. reason. The second reason, and, and you know, this book brings together people from very different backgrounds. Um, you had a Nobel Prize winner in economics who has done a ton of work on growth. Mike Spence, but he also had a policymaker and a politician in Gordon Brown, the former prime minister of the UK. And Gordon always said, don't underestimate um, the importance of hope. Hope drives, all, you know, a lot of things. And it's very important that we all believe that we can change the equation and get on a better path. Otherwise, we will start mm. not wanting to spend Companies are going to invest less. And then we can, we can create a really vicious cycle. So there's both a, a basis for hope in terms of we can change the direction of travel by simply understanding our problems and being open to best practices. And there's also a necessity for hope. That was Allianz Chief Economic Advisor and Queens College President Mohamed El Arian. Thanks for listening to this special episode of WSJ's Take on the Week. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. 
Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Selloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabowen. Stay smart. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.